0: Hi, I'm retired NYPD Detective Vic Ferrari, and welcome to NYPD Through the Looking Glass podcast, where you'll get unique insight into the New York City Police Department. On today's episode, we're going to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart, and that's auto theft, because as you know, I was a detective with the NYPD's Auto Crime Division 10 out of my 20 years with the department. But before we get started, I'd I'd encourage you to check out my new book, Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's Auto Crime Division. It's everything you wanted to know about the stolen car industry and were afraid to ask who steals your car, a car thief's mindset, where your car goes, what happens when it gets chopped, where do the parts go, how, does, how do vehicles wind up overseas in faraway lands, how to protect yourself from losing your car, and also how to read the Carfax report and how not to get ripped off when you're purchasing a vehicle. Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's auto crime division, has tons of stories from my NYPD career chasing down car thieves across the New York City area. So today we're going to talk about auto theft, but specifically the times I was tasked with stealing a vehicle. Now, keep in mind, legally, I had a search warrant or authorization from a district attorney, but I went out in the middle of the night, well, one time in the daytime too, and stole someone's vehicle. So let's get to it. In New York City, there's a thing called tagging. And what tagging is, is someone purchases a salvage vehicle, it's wrecked never coming back to life. They take all the VIN numbers off these cars that have been burned or involved in terrible accidents and they make what's called a VIN kit. It's all the paperwork for this car that's never coming back to life. Then what they do is they steal another car, same make, same model, same color, and they replace it and then they re-register the car and now they've got themselves a, a newer car for a fraction of the value. And a lot of times, these most people know, a lot of times I'm asked, well, do do people buy these cars sometimes and not know they're buying a tagged or altered VIN vehicle? It's a slippery slope. Most of the time they do because when someone sells you something, when a deal is too good to be true. it, it, there's something wrong with the deal. And on top of that, the guy's going to tell you, yeah, bring it to my mechanic because he knows if they plug that car into a computer or a mechanic is looking at that car and he's ordering parts, the parts aren't going to fit. If they steal, say for argument's sake, a 2020 BMW and they're trying to, and they're trying to use the, and they're trying, and they're, they're trying to pretend that it's a 2017. A lot of times things don't add up at the dealership and they'll, they'll actually call the police. So anyway, it was the mid-90s. My partner and I are driving around the Riverdale section of the Bronx. We spot this blazer. I run the plate. It's parked. And I know the year and the color off. So I get out of the vehicle. I look at the VIN number in the window, and I can tell. The VIN number has been altered. It's, all, it's off-centered. It doesn't belong in that windshield. So no one was around. I go back to the office, and I start doing some paperwork on the vehicle, where it came from, who registered it. What I quickly find out is, in addition to this vehicle being an altered VIN vehicle and and stolen, it's registered to a fictitious person that that obtained a driver's license on a phony social security number. Now that happens all the time. So what will happen is you'll pull over that vehicle and the driver of the car is not going to be the fictitious registered owner. He's going to be someone with a lit driver's license. So when you go to arrest him, the district attorney's office is going to say, well, he borrowed it from his friend. Yeah, but he's probably the guy using a phony ID. So a lot of times what these guys do is they register the car under a fictitious person. So this way, when they get caught, they can claim ignorance and usually the case goes away. So what I thought of was, what if I steal this vehicle off the street? The guy's gonna report it stolen. And when he comes into the precinct with the fictitious license to pick up his vehicle, I'll arrest him. So what my partner and I did was one night I went out I climbed underneath this vehicle. I got the confidential VIN number. I ran it in the computer, and in fact, it was stolen. So I obtained a search warrant, and one morning, we, uh, the auto crime division, we had tow trucks. We had flatbed trucks. We had a lot of good toys to use in the auto theft industry. So we go up to Riverdale one morning, and uh, I hook this thing up with the flatbed, and the alarm goes off. It's about 6 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, oh, crap, All right? The thing is, N-n-n-n-n. pull this thing up on the flatbed, drive to the precinct, and I park, I park this thing at the auto crime offices, and I, and I cancel the alarm. So what happens is, a few days later, I see that someone files a police report that their vehicle was stolen. So I call the guy up, and uh, he pretends that he's this fictitious person. And I said, well, listen, I says, I have your car. Um, it's just they've just broke the lock and they took the radio. It's, it's, it's in relatively good shape he goes, well, I want it back. I says, well, obviously, I says, it's at the pound. I says, how about this? How about you meet me in the precinct on Monday morning? Bring all the paperwork, bring your title, your driver's license, proof of ownership. I says, and I'll give you a release. You can go to the pound and, and pick up your car. He goes, OK, that's great. So we're waiting around the precinct for about twenty minutes, and this guy comes in with a briefcase. And uh, I says, "Oh, hi, you know, how are you?" He goes, "Fine." He hands me the phony driver's license, and his face is on it. And he hands me the registration for this vehicle. And I said, "Okay, come on, follow me." And I'm talking to him. He goes, "Oh, is the car here?" I'm like, "No, unfortunately, it's at the pound. You're going to have to go out there." Let, let me see this. Can you hand me the registration? Oh, do you have an insurance card? Great. And as he's handing me things, I'm walking him into the cells of the 50th precinct. And the next thing you know, he's standing in the cell block and he's looking at me. And I says, listen, dude, I said, the jig is up. You might as well give me your other driver's license. And he goes, oh, crap. So he wound up getting arrested for an altered, a stolen vehicle with an altered VIN number. So another time this happened to me was I arrest this kid on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And he's got this brand new Mercedes. Same thing. It's got an altered VIN number. So I arrest him, and he hints at that he might want to cooperate. He knows a lot more about auto theft, but he wants guarantees. And I says, listen, I said, if you wanted a guarantee, you should have bought this car brand new from the dealership. I says, tell me what you have. And quickly, he clammed up. So what I would often do is if I locked you up for an altered VIN vehicle or stolen vehicle, I kind of want to get to know you a little bit. And what I realized was he had just sold this newer Honda about six months earlier. So I start doing the workup on this Honda and I quickly realized that the thing was like the bus that got hit in a fugitive by a train the thing was burnt beyond recognition. This thing is never coming back. He went to a, uh, and well, he or one of his Confederates went to an auction, purchases this wrecked Honda Accord. And what they do is they change the VIN numbers on it. They go out and steal a new Honda Accord, mask it with the phony VIN numbers. And they register to an address out in Williamsbridge, Brooklyn. So I can't find this this vehicle for the life of me. I'm driving around looking for it, cannot find it. So what I did what's called a summons check. In New York, you're always getting parking tickets. And there's a way you can track a vehicle through parking tickets because you can see, okay, it's parked here, here, and here. It's getting tickets. This is probably the neighborhood it was in. I wasn't far off. It was the next neighborhood over. So same thing. My partner and I get up the next morning. We borrow a tow truck from the auto crime division, drive out to Brooklyn, and uh, hook this thing up. Thank God this time it doesn't have an alarm. We tow the thing over the Manhattan Bridge. We get it back to the Bronx office. And quickly, I'm opening up the hood. I'm looking for VIN numbers. I discover that the vehicle, yes, was reco- reported stolen six months earlier from, from an, a Queens precinct. So in, in the NYPD, when you, you recover a vehicle, you have to inventory every item that's in that vehicle. Whether it's arrest evidence or just a park stolen vehicle, anything that's in there, you're responsible for. So you have to voucher it. So my partner and I are going through the vehicle looking for for property and open the trunk and there's a bag, a gap bag, and it's full. So I just squeeze the bag and I looked at the guy I'm working with and I go, there's money in this bag. And he says, come on, what are you kidding me? I said, no, I'm serious. I open up the gap bag and I see $100 bills wrapped with rubber bands. He and I start look 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 at each other and we start laughing. I says, All right, let's let's go tell the lieutenant. So I take this gap bag filled with money. I go up to my lieutenant's office, I knock on his door, I go, You got a minute? He goes, Yeah, sure, Vic, come on in. And I dump the money on his desk. And he goes, Well, someone has a good investigation. I said, Yeah. I says, uh, this is a lot of money. He says, Okay, there's a whole procedure you have to do. So my lieutenant came, the the integrity control officer from our queen's office came. The money is counted again and again and again, and the and the denominations are marked. And while we're processing, I had a couple of detectives process the car because obviously the money was more important at this point. And I think it was about thirty-eight thousand dollars, if memory serves me correctly. I, I could be wrong, but it, I think I, that number just sticks out—thirty-eight grand. So we count out this money, we put it in a bag. And in the NYPD, there's a way you can do, it's called forfeiture. So just in case someone comes out of the woodwork, reports the car stolen, says, well, time out, this is my money. They're going to have to show where it came from. They're going to have to show bank records or receipts from a business, why there's $38,000 just sitting in the trunk of a stolen car. So what what you do is you go down to one police plaza, and there's this joint task force with the feds, and what they do is you take your money down there and they take several denominations out. And it was the wildest thing I had ever seen. They take the money out and they spread it out on a table. And then one of the detectives from this unit has a shop vac, a little shop vac that you would use for your car. And he plugs in this, um, look like a, a, a little disc. He plugs it in. And then he goes, do me a favor and wave the money in front of me. And I says, what, are you kidding me? He goes, no, I'm serious. So I'm waving the money in front of him, and he's running this vac, shop vac up and down the money. He takes out the disc, he plugs it into a computer, and this graph appears. And I'm going, what's this? He goes, well, this is what the money tests positive for. And I think the, the cash that I recovered t- tested positive for hashish, cocaine, and I think heroin. It was like a trifecta which all money is, is touched by drugs at one point or another. But I guess the, the reason they do this is if someone does come out of the woodwork and they do show, they do show proof how they got the money, they're also going to have to explain why it's testing positive for, for, for drugs. Anyway, we put the money in a bank bag and the NYPD has a procedure. Now, this is about 12, 12 o'clock at night. It's, it's midnight. The, the banks are closed. There's this procedure where you take it to, and I think at the time it was a Chase Bank there was a chase bank in the bronx where you would dump it in a night deposit box and and w- w- with uh with a bag so we come we come out of police plaza right we got all this paperwork i'm carrying this bag filled with $38,000 it's me my sergeant and my partner and my sergeant goes you know i'm getting a little hungry i says you hungry now he goes come on let's get chinese food it's on me well you know one police plaza is literally sitting in chinatown and that's where the best chinese restaurants are I go, where do you want to go? He goes, let's go to 69 Bayard. 69 Bayard was the address. That's what we called it. I'm sure it's got another name. It was unique about 69 Bayard is, was a little hole in the wall Chinese restaurant. But on the wall, there were thousands of doll- $1 bills with autographs, signatures. The whole walls were papered with $1 bills. And to this day, I don't know how someone just didn't come in there and start peeling dollars off the wall, but there were, there was, thousands of dollars, $1 bills taped all over the wall, and the money was filthy. Anyway, we go in, we get out of the vehicle, and my sergeant goes, what are you doing? I says, well, I'm taking the money with us. He goes, no, leave that in the trunk. I said, boss, are you kidding me? We vouchered the money. Our commanding officer knows about it. We, we did a forfeiture proceeding for it. If someone steals our car or breaks into the trunk, The three of us are getting suspended. No one's going to believe that $38,000 vanished into thin air. He goes, you know, you're right. And it was like that scene in Pulp Fiction where John Travolta and uh, Samuel L. Jackson, they kill those guys, and now they've got that briefcase that when you open it up, you really don't know what's in it, but a gold light is coming out of it. Same thing. I'm carrying around a bag with $38,000 in Chinatown at midnight. And we're sitting in this Chinese restaurant, you know, recapping the night, and I've got thirty-eight grand sitting at my feet. So, long story short, I, re- I uh, we deposited the we deposited the money at the bank, and eventually there was there was more to that case that I'll get into on another podcast. The third time I was tasked with stealing a vehicle uh, was probably around two thousand. My office, the auto crime division, was doing a joint case with the Westchester County District Attorney's Office. And basically it went like this. We had thieves in the Bronx, in the west part of the Bronx, the Wakefield section. They were stealing high-end BMWs, Mercedes, very expensive vehicles from Westchester County. And then they were bringing the vehicles back to the Bronx and they were chopping them up, and the parts were going to different body shops. These guys were also into racing. They raced BMWs, so a lot of times if they blew a motor in a race, they weren't going to spend eight grand for a BMW motor. They were going to go out and steal your car, chop it up, take the motor, throw it in, rinse and repeat, and go out racing again. So we were surveilling these guys, following these guys all all hours of the night. We had multiple wiretaps up, but at one point, the thieves stole a 5-series BMW four-door. And what they did was they took the plates off the stolen BMW. They put a bogus plate on it that wasn't reported stolen. And they put a, a business card over the VIN plate to mask the identity of the vehicle. And it, it, it was a perfect scam because... The vehicle fit up in Westchester County. So as they're driving around, someone sees a 5 Series BMW, it's not going to stand out as, you know, it's like some shitbox car bouncing around up there. On top of that, if the police chase them, it's a 5 Series, got a big motor. Chances are they're going to lose them. The vehicle handles better and is faster than any police car. And if they have to abandon ship and dump the car, as long as they're wearing gloves, the vehicle is going to come back stolen. It's not going to come back to anybody. So while these guys were out stealing, they had basically depleted Westchester County of so many cars, they started breaking into people's garages, you know, breaking into mansions in the middle of the night, stripping people's cars in their in their garages or taking them out of their garages. And at that point, the Westchester County DA's office got scared because now, now this is turning into a burglary. And people can often get hurt or seriously injured or killed in a burglary because if you, you find somebody in the middle of the night in your garage— What if they don't run away and they confront you? So somebody could get hurt. So we really had to step up our game. So a plan was devised that we knew where they used to park this stolen BMW at night. So what I did was through BMW, I was able to get a key cut for the car. And what we were going to do was we were going to steal this car in the middle of the night, take it to Highway 1 in the Bronx where we would have Taru, which is like the NYPD tech guys, hardwire a gps and a sound and, and a microphone in there so we could listen to their conversations and track the car because when you're doing surveillance sometimes people can see you now the car is burned but if you can monitor the car with a laptop that's just so much easier so one night what we did was and it was it, there was a ton of people involved in this i get dropped off on this block and with this with a key for the car i get into the car And now keep in mind, it's 2 o'clock in the morning, and this stolen vehicle is parked in front of one of our main subject's houses, and he was known to be violent. So I didn't want to get shot or hit with a baseball bat stealing this guy's car. So I got a hoodie on. I get dropped off. I get into the car, One, two, three. I stick the key in the ignition of this 5 Series. I turn the key. Nothing. And I'm like, oh, crap. I'm turning the key, turning the key. And... My radio starts chirping up in the vehicle. Hey, Vic, Vic, why aren't you moving? Why aren't you moving? I'm like, the thing doesn't start. I think it's got a kill switch. So they said, all right, abort. I jump out of the car. I close it. I don't slam the doors to make a lot of noise. I walk up the block. I get picked up. We meet at a parking lot, and we're trying to figure out why that thing wouldn't start. And I'm like, I don't know. I think he's got a kill switch in it. Maybe they disconnected the battery. But now, if I'm spending a lot of time messing with this thing, the more time I'm in that car moving around in it, the chances are I could get caught. And I'll never forget one of the guys I'm working with goes, Hey, Vic, is that car a stick? And I said, you know what I did? I didn't look, I have no idea. I mean, I don't think so. It's a five series. So my lieutenant goes, well, it's worth the shot. He goes, drop him back off and see if it's a stick. Same thing. Drop me off. I walk up to this BMW, now I'm nervous because I was already in this thing and I'm like, what if someone saw me, now they're waiting by the window again with a shotgun or a baseball bat. I slip into the car and I put my hand on the center console and I feel I feel the stick. I stick my left foot down and I, I, feel, I feel the clutch. I turn the key, boom, the thing starts right up. So I pull out of the space. As I pull out of the space, we had another detective with another vehicle save the parking spot because that's crucial. You don't want to leave and someone takes that parking spot and then you do what you got to do when you return the car and it's across the street. The perp is going to figure out, hey, wait a minute. I parked it over here. Why why is it over there? So I drive the car. I get up. I I get on the highway. I drive to Highway 1. Our tech guys are in the garage sitting around drinking coffee. Now, again, this is 2000. So you didn't have like the slap on GPSs with with good batteries and stuff. These guys, I, I couldn't believe how quick they did it. They took the dashboard apart. They hardwired a GPS and a microphone in the vehicle. They put it back in under an hour, probably about 45 minutes. I jumped back on the car. As I was getting close to the block, as I hit the corner, I says, all right, I'm rolling. The next thing I know, I see another guy slip into that car. He starts it up. He pulls out of the spot. I roll in, I I put the car back, I shut it, I walk away, not making a lot of noise, I get picked up. And from that point forward, that was a game changer because now we could monitor these guys with, with a GPS and a laptop. So what would happen is every time these guys got in the car, it sounded like a telephone ring, the program we had. So you're sitting there watching the laptop and it go, bring! And you'd see the microphone would turn on. You'd see the car start. And we just tracked it up into Westchester County. And after about a week or so of this, when we really had enough evidence to identify all the subjects and take the case down, we rounded up probably about 10 individuals. And they were charged with burglary, um, grand loss in the auto, a, a, a list of charges. And the wild thing about that case is the thieves... A lot of them were born in the West Indies and came to the United States 20, 30 years ago, but never obtained citizenship. So at the completion of their sentences, after they did time in a New York state prison, one guy did... One guy did like seven or eight years. He, w- he was deported to Jamaica. And these guys had no roots or family in these countries anymore. Their parents had brought them here when they were small children. They never got around to doing the paperwork to becoming United States citizens. And they were stuck on the other side of these countries. The wild thing is two of the bad guys in this case, one guy made bail. And they were working out a plea bargain where he would do like 10 years. And he absconded. He took off. And they were, later, they were able to tra- track him. I think it was to Stone Mountain, Georgia, of all places. They brought him back. The, the, um, the, the, uh, the deal was off the table. And he wound up getting 17 years. And another one of the thieves was deported to Jamaica. He slipped back into the United States after doing his time and after being deported. And just several years ago, Um, a a cop up in Westchester County, I forget what town saw him breaking into a vehicle at a dealership up in Westchester and they got into a fight and the guy was trying to take the cop's gun. And I think eventually after all that, between being arrested a million times, being deported and almost killing this poor cop up in Westchester County, he was, he was deported. Oh no, he wasn't deported. He, I think he got life. So, you know, auto theft, everybody thinks nobody goes to jail for it. And for the most part, they don't. But every now and then, you keep doing something long enough, it's going to stick. So that's my two cents for this week. I encourage you to check out my books on Amazon. Again, Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's Auto Crime Division. It's everything you wanted to know about the stolen car industry. NYPD Through the Looking Glass, Stories from Inside America's Largest Police Department. NYPD Law and Disorder. The NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime, and Chaos, and my latest book, which has nothing to do with the NYPD, but it's about me growing up in the Bronx and how I changed my life and became a New York City police officer. And that book is called Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate, all my books are $10 paperback, $2.99 eBook download. I appreciate you listening to my podcast. I'll have more content out next week. And if you could, please leave a review because all good all reviews, good, bad, and indifferent, helps me become a better broadcaster. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next week.